T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Two years ago, Sean Caston was a first-time candidate and managed to unseat a solid conservative GOP congressman in a traditionally Republican district. Now up for re-election, the Downers Grove Democrat is in a spirited fight. We'll check in to see how things are going on the campaign trail and on Capitol Hill in a most tumultuous year. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest is the Congressman of Illinois 6th District, Sean Caston. He's a businessman and a scientist. He has degrees in molecular biology and biochemical engineering. He founded Recycled Energy Development, LLC, the company's mission to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and make money doing it. Caston ousted veteran Congressman Peter Roskam in the Democratic wave that also brought Lauren Underwood into the seat formerly held by Republican Randy Hultgren. The Republican Party wants both of those seats back. Meanwhile, Congressman Kasten has established himself on Capitol Hill as an advocate for fighting climate change and preserving the environment. He also speaks out on health care and is usually pretty edgy in debates. In this new normal of social distancing, we are not talking face-to-face. This interview is taking place via Zoom conferencing. Congressman Sean Kasten, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to see you again, Craig, and glad to see you're healthy and healthy and well. And I hope all things are well on your end, too. You know, if we had talked two weeks ago, the list of topics would not have looked anything like what it does now. Uh, This country is going through quite an incredible time. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I keep hoping that we are, that we're going to take this moment to to move forward. You know, we, you know, COVID, COVID exaggerated all these inequities that we had. COVID was a situation that was made worse by the fact that we We've politicized science, and the, the pain that has come out of this, the, the deaths, the discomfort, the unemployment, um, and, and indeed all of that has now been manifest in the protests. If we can come out of this with some recognition that it didn't have to be this bad, and let's repair the things that, that made it worse than it needed to be, then, then maybe, we will, maybe we'll be a bit more perfect union on the back end, and, and let's work to try to make that happen. Well, I want to talk about the uh, the turmoil that we've seen over the last week or so first, because the you know the demonstrations and the outrage over the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis uh, they're understandable. Uh, there have been a number of African American men and women killed in questionable police actions across the country, but I expect that there are many people who've been watching events unfold over the last weeks 
who are bewildered and angered by the violence and the looting that occurred. I mean, what do you make of, of what we are seeing and have seen? Um, so look, no question, I think in the, you know, in an, in an ideal world, we don't have, we don't have sort of bad elements that are infiltrating peaceful protests. Um, and I think we'd all like to live in a world where that doesn't happen. In an ideal world, we also don't have, don't have bad cops who are infiltrating police departments and, and you know, committing acts of murder that they can get away with. We don't, we don't live in an ideal world. I'm not happy about that. But, but that's what, you know, we, we need to address what's there and move on. Now, you know, with respect to, I think it's just important to flag that there is, there are things that we know about the, the looting and the arson and the crimes that have happened, and there are things that we don't know. And I want to be real clear um, not, to, not to confuse one with the other. We know that there were criminal elements involved in these protests all around the country. We know that a lot of those criminal elements were heavily organized. We don't know as yet, at least from you know, what the FBI and others have released, of whether, whether those, those actors were people who were, were there to peacefully protest who got angry or whether they were people who infiltrated peaceful protests and tried to co-opt them. Um, I suspect the truth will, be, um, will, you know, will at least be some of both. And so I think it's important for us to, to resist the urge to draw conclusions that might fit our preconceived biases until we've got the information in. In the midst of uh, the uh, days of violence, President Trump talked to uh, a roundtable of governors and, and called several of them weak for not dominating the violent protesters. He said strong action was needed, and some would say he, he, he took that strong action. Um, would, would you agree that, that he did take the kind of action he was talking about? Um, you know, look, as... What was the old vanity profile, vanity fair profile of Trump years ago? He's a, he's a poor man's idea of a rich man and a weak man's idea of a strong man. Strength in this moment is someone who can appeal to, to all of us, to recognize that we all play a role in getting through this moment, to recognize that the, you know, we are, we're ultimately all Americans and we're all going to rise and sink based on how we succeed in that, this moment. Strength is not about being a bully. Strength is not about finding ways to divide us. And I'm, you know, we're, we're past the point. Trump is far too old a dog to learn new tricks at this point. But the, the, the inflammation of those tensions, the constant reframing of this as us against them, and whether that's black versus white or rich versus poor or red states versus blue states, it is not constructive. It, it, feeds, the, it feeds the angst and the anger. Um, and I, I wish we had a president who was capable of speaking to us all and rising above this. Um, with malice towards none, with charity towards all. We know what that looks like in a president. Um, Republican or Democrat, when George Bush stood, on the, stood at 9-11 and you know, the first thing out of his mouth was that we are not at a war against Islam. He recognized that the role of the president is to unite us in these moments. And, uh, and we have a president who's exaggerating division and that's that's unfortunate it's even more unfortunate that there are so many within his party who are completely unafraid to say what is so obviously true but it also seems at times that there are people who 
are feeling that they now can say the kinds of things that they're hearing from the White House. And we're seeing more incidents of, uh, you know, racial conflict where people are basically speaking their minds against uh, uh, other people, you know, in stores and out on the street. There's, look, there's no, there's no question that you, if, if you have the privilege to hold elected office, and you have the privilege to, in some fashion, shape the, shape the dialogue in your, in your country, in your state, in your congressional district, in your city. That's a, that's a lot of power. But with that power comes a lot of responsibility. And, and I, you know, I, 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 I think I agree with what you're saying. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Craig, but you're absolutely right that when the president of the United States speaks in a fashion, um, brags about sexual assault, relies on you know, lazy racist stereotypes. He sends a signal to people that it's okay to talk like that. And we, we need to move beyond that as a country. We need to move beyond that as a people. We don't raise our kids that way. We need to model the behavior we expect from others. And it's when you speak that way from, a, you know, from a, an elevated pulpit, there are people who will follow you, and that's it's a scary moment to be in when when we don't have someone in the White House who at least I, I think appreciates the consequences of their actions. But now, how does the nation move forward from this, as you were saying, um, without I mean, Everyone is saying the violence is bad. Everyone is saying the, what happened to George, uh, George Floyd was bad. But what's the next step after that? Um, you know, I think I think in many ways we know what the next steps are, but we have to we have to confront them. Um, you know, I think we know what good leadership looks like because we've seen it before. And as I said, that hasn't been partisan. You can, you can point to you know, people of all parties who have recognized the power of, of unity and the ability to inspire us. And in fact, you've seen it in a lot of our governors and a lot of other leaders of other countries right now who have, who have appealed to people's better angels. But I think, I think beyond just rhetoric, the, we need to have a conversation. We've never really addressed the original sin of our country. You know? Um, Brian Stevenson was on our, our caucus call, you know, the author of Just Mercy and the Equal Justice Project. And you know, I, don't, I can't even pretend to be as eloquent as he is, but he's done just such a beautiful job of articulating both in his writing and his movies and in, the, and in the work he's done down in Alabama with the museum, that the, the sin of slavery was not the brutality, the sin was the narrative of inequality. And that we, we ended the brutality of slavery, but we didn't, we didn't eliminate the narrative of inequality. And so, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of well-meaning people who, if I say looter, and your stereotype is a young black man, you have fallen for that narrative of inequality. If I say, if I say terrorist, and your stereotype is a, is a brown man in a turban, and not the Ku Klux Klan, you have fallen for that narrative of inequality. If I say welfare and your stereotype is someone who is stealing money from the government instead of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, you have fallen for that narrative of inequality. And we've never, we've never really confronted that because to confront our imperfections as a country is to admit that we're not perfect. 
but in, but until we confront that, we're not really going to get through this moment. And I, and I think there's a, I, I think there's an opportunity and a beauty. John Lewis, um, he, he said, he said to us yesterday that in all his years in the civil rights movement, he has never seen something like he's seen in the last few weeks. And, and he said specifically, not, not the violence, he's seen that certainly, you know, up close and more personal than any of us have. But he said he's never seen such an enormous diversity of the country rising up to acknowledge those root causes. And there's something beautiful in that. And there's and if we are if we are going to live up to our potential, it's gonna, you know, the first step in the 12 step process is admitting you have a problem. And and if, if we admit that we have a problem and then we can start addressing those root causes, not just from police system reform, of course we have to do that, criminal justice reform, housing reform, access to capital, um, a whole host of, of issues, we know what they are. We just need to, we just need to commit ourselves to fixing them. And I am, I am, I am hopeful that in this moment we're at, least, we're at least starting to have that conversation and can move forward. Um, and, and I want to be clear, this is not just about um, do it because it's the morally right thing to do. A, a truly meritocratic country will kick the rest of the world's butt because we're going to put all the best people in positions of power, right? Why, why run into a headwind if you don't have to? Let's, let's run downhill. We have, we have the ability to do that right now. And, and if, if folks can't do that out of a moral reason, then let's do it out of their own self-interest. But let's do it. You're listening to News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking via Zoom conferencing with Illinois 6th District Congressman and Democrat Sean Kasten. Let's turn to the coronavirus uh, that has been dominating our headlines until uh, George Floyd. Uh, we're emerging from the coronavirus lockdowns. People are trying to get back to work and save their businesses and their jobs, but a lot of them are kind of discouraged because maybe not many or some of them are not going to come back. Some of them may not get their jobs back. And what do we say to those people about what has happened to them? You know, number one, I think this is a case where um, anybody who pretends to be a public health expert who isn't should probably quiet down a little bit in this moment. The we can't separate the public health crisis from the economic crisis. Um, had we not taken the measures to, to you know, largely shut down the economy, we would have had millions of deaths. Um, the actions that people have taken, the sacrifices that people have made are the reasons why there are more people alive today. And all of us deserve, deserve credit that we will never receive for, for doing what we did and taking that sacrifice. Now, having said that, the United States has had as 4% of the world's population, almost a third of the, of the coronavirus deaths. So there are a lot of things we could have done better. I think the, the best description that I've heard of our economy was Paul Krugman's comment that the, this is not a disaster relief bill, this is not a stimulus bill. What we have had to do economically is to basically put the economy into a medically assisted coma and make sure that it's okay when we come out. So we've passed three trillion with a T dollars of funding that has provided money for small businesses, for larger businesses, for individuals, expanded money to hospitals. 
basically trying to make sure that when this comes off, we can rebound. We've passed an additional $3 trillion beyond that in the House through the HEROES Act, which is critical, and we're going to have to get that spent to make sure that states get funding as well. And the honest truth is that all of those programs, $6 trillion, to put that in context, the entire federal budget is $5 trillion. So we've passed more in emergency funding than we passed in the budget. All of those programs, which have made this less painful than it might otherwise be, are they largely expire by the end of the summer. And you know, unemployment insurance won't continue. These, the Paycheck Protection Programs won't continue. And if we do not have the public health crisis behind us at that point, we're going to have to spend a lot more. And I think um, you know, it's hard to get our head around those numbers. It's hard to think about how we're going to come out from under that, that fiscal overhang. But I know it's a lot better than trying to figure out what we would do if millions more people had died. And if the crisis itself hasn't been politicized, everything surrounding it has, uh, including the, uh, the federal relief measures. And on this program a couple of weeks ago, uh, your rival, Jeannie Ives, or your challenger, basically said that these measures, the relief measures are too much and not accounted for well enough. And she also uh, said, you pushed for subsidies and tax deals for uh, the green energy industry, which she says is heavily subsidized, and that basically you're helping you and your friends. Um, look, that's, I'm not going to delve into name calling. Um, it's not particularly mature to do it, and it's not particularly mature to respond. We, anybody, anybody who thinks that you can put $3 trillion into the economy and do it perfectly and make sure that every dollar gets exactly where it's supposed to go. But of course it didn't. And we were actually advised by Ben Bernanke, um, I think wisely, he said, when you go into this moment, you are going to feel a tension between speed and efficiency. Um, the faster you get the money out, the less efficient it's going to be, the more you try to get it exactly where it needs to go, um, the, the slower it's going to be. And he, and he said, when in doubt, bias towards speed because the, you know, you've got almost 50% of Americans have less than $500 in their bank account. You can't afford to sit around and wait to see if you get it to the right places. Um, so sure, in hindsight, you could find ways to do it better, but we did the best we could in the moment we had, and I think on balance, we got it right. Um, the, I think what's scary um, is, you know, the U.S. payrolls, annual, weekly U.S. payroll expense is about a trillion dollars. When we're sitting at 14% unemployment right now, the, the scale of expense in the economy is just massive. 14% of a trillion dollars that isn't flowing through every week, on week, on week, on week. Um, yeah, those are big dollars. But if the federal government doesn't step up, no one steps up. Um, I do have to, to press you on one point since you made a very specific uh, uh, suggestion or allegation. She says that uh, you personally invested in in Greenleaf Power. Uh, you're you're invested in the industry, and that it's a renewable energy company, and that there's a, something of a conflict for a stimulus package that also benefits a business that you're in. Look, there's there's a whole lot wrong with that. Um, the, I have a, I built a company called Recycled Energy Development. We spun out a series of biomass assets that are now doing business as Greenleaf Power. I have a tiny minority stake in that country. I have no, that company, I have no control over it. I don't sit on the board meetings. I don't know anything about it. 
I have as much economic interest or control in what happens to that company as I do to, you know, whatever shares of, of you know, any other company or, you know, my, my 401k plan. Um, it's a talking point. It's not a fact. But, but let's take a separate point. The do, am I absolutely committed to making sure that we have a clean future? You betcha I am. Am I absolutely committed to making sure that we have a low-cost energy future? You betcha I am. That's what I dedicated my career to when I was in the private sector. And I didn't change what matters to me because I'm in the public sector. But as a wise man once said, when, when someone accuses you of something you've never thought of, you immediately know what they are capable of. I assure you that it never crossed my mind that supporting clean energy would be something that I would do because it was purely greedy. I do it because I care about this planet and I want to leave a better planet to my kids than the one I got from my parents. Um, the other areas of conflict, at least in, uh, among, well, many people, have been about what's going to be allowed and what's not as we come out of this. And the one thing uh, Jeannie Ives has been doing is petitioning the state to allow youth sports programs this summer with some precaution, she says. Um, what do you say to people who do feel that things like that, where they may not have such programs, or may, uh, are too tight? Well... I think we can overthink we can overthink the power of any one person to shut down the economy. The, the, the question about when the economy will reopen, I think we've, we've, you know, it's easy for us to think about, well, what does the governor say? What does the president say? What does a member of Congress say? When are you as an individual, Craig, or one of your listeners going to feel comfortable going to a baseball game again? If, if Lollapalooza was going on today, would you feel safe going down to Grant Park and walking among the crowds and, and seeing what goes on? Would you feel safe going to a bar? And that's an individual decision. It's collective, but it's individual. The, I cannot imagine a scenario where we would, we would compel people to go back to work in places where they didn't feel safe. I certainly can't imagine a situation where we'd say, let's Let's go tell teenagers to go work at a summer camp where, um, you, know, you know, teenagers are good at some things. Social distancing is general not, generally not their strong suit, especially when they're away from home, you know, working in a summer camp. Um, the, I can't imagine a situation where we tell people to do that. And so the answer is not, not what some politician says, what some aspiring politician says, um, certainly not what some petition says, because I don't really care what what some random ballot question says about the majority. What matters is what the scientists and public health experts say is appropriate and necessary. And we know right now we don't have a treatment for coronavirus. We know right now we don't have a vaccine for coronavirus. We know right now that exactly as Dr. Fauci had predicted, we're seeing a slowdown in the summer because the virus doesn't like heat and, and sunlight all that much like most viruses. We also know that as it sits right now, if we don't isolate the virus out of our, um, you know, out of our society and, and get people to get over it and get through it, we're going to see a surge in the fall. I don't want more Americans to die. I don't want more Americans to get sick. And we're sitting here right now, we've taken it for granted that every day another 1,000 Americans are dead. We've, we've just become inured to that. And the idea that we would accept that as normal so that, so that we can go to summer camps, my goodness. Let me ask you about something President Trump did this week because it's in your wheelhouse uh, that he used 
an executive order to uh, waive environmental review for infrastructure projects. Uh, I know we've already heard from Senator Tammy Duckworth who called that disheartening. Uh, a lot of these projects are often in uh, low-income areas. What is your feeling about that? I, I, I mean, I can guess it, but... Yeah, I mean, like your, your, your guess is right. There's, there's a reason why there's a reason why Congress writes laws. There's a reason why we have rules that we need to make sure that there are environmental reviews and environmental protections. There's a reason why we have rules that give local communities an opportunity to weigh in. And, um, and to, to oppose the idea that local communities and individuals in a democratically elected government would have a say, um, it's, that's to embrace authoritarianism. It's, it's not only bad environmental policy, it's, it's bad for democracy. Um, the, if, if the president has a, you know, a legitimate reason why some environmental review standards are too stringent, let's bring it to Congress. Congress is, is actually pretty good at reviewing those things and saying, do we need to, do we need to adapt? Have circumstances changed? Is there, is there some balance of equities we need to think about differently? Um, but that's not really the president's wheelhouse or expertise. Uh, let me ask a, a flat-out political question. Why isn't Jeannie Ives, a Republican who almost knocked Governor or former Governor Bruce Rauner off the uh, GOP uh, primary, why is she not the best fit or the better fit for the 6th District? Well, look, I don't, I don't judge anybody by the letter they happen to hang off their name. Um, and maybe that's just because I haven't spent enough time in politics. I don't know. But the the question really is what do what are the values of the district and does a representative represent those values that's the system our founders designed right um this is a district that that is is pretty highly educated we got argonne just to the south of us fermilab just to the west there's no debate here about climate change there's no debate about whether it's man-made there's no debate about whether we got to do something about it except between me and gene this is a date that's unabashedly pro-choice, that believes that women and only women should have the right to control what they do with their bodies. Um, there's no real debate about that in the district except between me and Jeannie. This is a district that is really concerned about, about school shootings and thinks we got too many, too many darn guns in this country. Um, and that the Second Amendment, you know, unless you're a member of a well-regulated militia, this is not a place where um, people have a lot of concerns about having stricter background checks, bans on assault weapons, all the things we should do. There's not really debate about that except between me and my opponent. Um, this is a district that wants, wants to make sure that everybody has access to health care, that's angry that Trump is taking that away. The only debate that's there is between me and my opponent. So if she wants to stand up and campaign on her values, campaign on your values. That's the way democracy works. But you know, I don't, I don't vote for people just because of what team they belong to. I wouldn't ask the voters to vote for me just because of what team I belong to. But I, but I do think it's important for people to know where, they're, where they're, their representatives or those who would aspire to be their representatives stand on the issues. And on the issues, I know where the voters are. Assuming or if you were to uh, be reelected, what would be your first priority? What, what still needs to be done. Well, we don't have enough time in the television. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I, you know, I campaigned, I've dedicated my career to doing something about climate change. That remains my top priority. And to be perfectly honest, what we have done in this Congress on that front 
I'm not especially proud of. We, you know, we passed HR 9 to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Um, I've got a whole lot of bills that I've been pushing through committee and moving forward. But at the, at the leadership level in Congress, um, and, and frankly, in part because of the political moment, you know, when, you know we, we spent the first 30 days of this Congress trying to get the government reopened. Um, we, of course, had massive constitutional violations that led to an impeachment. We now are at the constitutional crisis and a pandemic. It's understandable that, you know, some other priorities have captured where we are. But we are running out of time to deal with climate seriously at the speed that it needs to be dealt with. And we have such an economic opportunity to do it. And I am, I am hopeful that with, you know, with, with one term under my belt and a little bit more seniority and a little bit more ability to impact the, not just what bills I can write and not just what bills I can vote on, but actually what bills get driven to the floor because Congress at the end of the day is a seniority driven institution. Um, I can control that a little bit. Now, now beyond that, I have, uh, I have some real concerns that the public health crisis that is COVID is creating such a deep economic crisis that we may well be at a point of figuring out how to rebuild the economy in a really deep way, much deeper than 2008. And that means infrastructure investments, hopefully infrastructure of the future, not of the 1950s, and really means dealing with some of the inequities, access to healthcare and what have you, that made coronavirus harder than it needed to be. Thank you. That is Congressman Sean Caston of Downers Grove. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.